and we like to be gatekeepers. But I don't think that's what the church was ever called to be or to do. Like we got this invitation from God to this great feast, and somehow along the way we got the idea that we were supposed to be the bouncers, when in fact we're the guests. Mm -hmm. Welcome to the next edition of Resurrection Covenant Church's series, Letters to the Church. It's a series in which we're making space to hear from different voices across the church as they share with us what they would like to say to the church in this particular moment in time. And today we're really excited to welcome uh, our friend, writer, teacher, reporter, minister, among many other things, uh, Jeff Chu. Jeff is co-host of the Evolving Faith Conference, the author of Does Jesus Really Love Me? A Gay Christian's Pilgrimage in Search of God in America, and is currently serving as the teacher in residence at Central Reformed Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Jeff, really, thanks so much for taking the time today. Mm -hmm. And while we look forward to at some point in time being able to have you in person with us, uh, we're really thankful that you're willing to take the time today to be with us in this capacity. Sure, thanks for the invitation. One of the questions that we have is just as kind of a get to know you kind of question. Um, if you were, it's a little silly, but if you were at a party and someone asked about who you are and what makes you, you, how would you respond to that? Perhaps another way to think about it is what shapes or forms how you show up in the world? So I feel like this question was written by an extrovert. <laughs> if we're talking about who I am, I'm probably not at the party. Because I'm a super shy introvert. I uh, feel that. I am not very good at meeting new people. And honestly, there's a lot of fear there. Uh, fear that started accumulating pretty early on as a kid. Uh, because I learned that who you are, elements of yourself that you can't control, can and will be weaponized against you. Um, so that's shaped how I've showed up in the world. And I've had to learn to start healing from that. Um, so I show up in the world as someone who's trying to follow Jesus. But that doesn't mean I like show up at the party talking about Jesus. <laughs> it's a real buzzkill. kill. It really is. <laughs> it really is. Um, I show up in the world as a person of rich and deep Hong Kong Chinese heritage. I show up in the world as an American citizen. I show up in the world as a gay man. I show up in the world as a husband, as an uncle, as a son, as a friend. And I say those and I include those because in the culture of my upbringing, uh, the collective is more important than the individual. And you are who you are because of your relationships. I show up in the world, as Aaron mentioned, as a reporter and a writer. and. As you can tell, there are layers to my identity, right? And sometimes that gets a little messy. So there are days when the good things went out over the bad, and there are days when the bad things went out over the good. And I feel like every day is a little bit of a tussle to get the balance more on the side of the good. Mm. Yeah. So we've just come out, I mean, we're in the midst of it, but we've just come out of Pride Month, countrywide protests, uh, the continuing movement for Black Lives, Fourth of July weekend, all in the midst of quarantine. So it's this really disruptive, but also disruptive time, but also a time of possibility. So what do you see as the role of the church in the midst of this particular time? 
So you're not much for ramping out with ramping up. With no, we're up. we're right there. We're going right into it. <laughs> Great party you all throw. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm not the first to say that this is an apocalyptic season, right? By which I don't mean what I thought of as apocalypse being when I was a kid, which was hellfire and brimstone and were my parents raptured without me. Um, apocalypse is unveiling. It's the world being revealed for what it is. It has been for many folks too easy to look away from this reality. And what's happening now, I think, is that things are surfacing that have been for many of us just sitting below the surface, uh, whether it's our fragile healthcare system or the various forms of bigotry and inequity that have persisted for generations. And uh, that's racial, that's uh, socioeconomic, that is mm -hmm. gender-based, all these different levels. But here's the thing, even with that change, I don't think the role of the church changes. Mm. I think the church is supposed to do what it's always been called to do, which is to point people to a bigger story, a story of good news, a story of otherworldly hope and enduring love. And the problem is the church hasn't consistently been very good at this at all, <laughs> which is one reason we're in the situation we're in. I think one of the severe downsides of Christianity being the dominant religion in the United States is that it's gotten too comfortable. Mm. And the gospel is deeply uncomfortable. I think the gospel is demanding. The gospel is countercultural. The gospel is hard. Yes, the gospel is love and grace and good news, but it exacts a high price. And I can imagine some folks in your congregation nodding along because they're feeling pretty good about themselves as activists or active advocates or allies or accomplices for the cause of justice, right? But the thing is the gospel is supposed to be hard for all of us because the ends and the means of justice as shaped by Jesus might look different from justice as it's defined by the world or by the Twitterverse. <laughs> And the love to which Christ calls us can look pretty naive and stupid to the secular world. Like, it's in the last 24 hours, I, the number of times I've been called a naive fool, um, mm. I've lost count. And the love to which Christ calls us is the job of the church to live out. So the role of the church is what it has always been to reach people wherever they are with the balm of God's love and grace. And the strategy and the tactics might change, but I don't think the calling ever does. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we've been, <clears throat> I'm really, I'm really interested in your thoughts on the, what those strategies and tactics might be. Um, I'm also, so that's something that is striking a note with me. Um, and from what you said, but I'm also, one of the things we talk a lot about is, this idea of cultivating imagination. Mm -hmm. um, and one part of the role of the church is to cultivate an imagination sure. um, that in some ways is very different than the imagination um, of, or the stories, the narratives that we're being told all the, all over the place that we're encountering. 
Um, wondering if you, what your thoughts are on that idea of what it looks like to cultivate an imagination that, that includes this piece of extracting a price or the, the costliness of, of grace. So I'm glad you bring up imagination because I think the church in its comfort has lacked a lot of imagination because imagination mm. can feel threatening. Mm -hmm. Imagination means asking big questions, uh, re-interrogating those things we thought we knew. Um, I've been in correspondence with a couple of rabbis this past week and it strikes me how rich the Jewish imagination is because they're not afraid to walk up to scripture and see it from a totally different perspective mm -hmm. and make demands of it and examine the white space in between the lines of the text to say what isn't said, what's lying just off the page. Um, so I think imagination is crucial. So what's the starting point, right? Why is it so hard for us to cultivate? Um, I've been thinking about lament and how bad many of us are at lament. Uh, it wasn't part of my tradition growing up, but I think lament is crucial to imagination, both individually and collectively, because how can you imagine a new future if you're not honest about the present and the past? Mm -hmm. So we see lament both in the Psalms and throughout scripture, right? There's an entire book called Lamentations, which you <laughs> ne almost never read, except for that line that says God's mercies are new every day. Yeah, right. Pretty much the only positive. <laughs> <laughs> we pulled out that one positive. <laughs> right, and it's, it's like this toxic positivity. Mm -hmm. But you can't address what needs to be addressed if you don't know how to name it. And the beautiful thing about lament is lament isn't just naming what's wrong, but also entrusting it along with all our complicated feelings, all our anger, all our rage, all our heart's desires. Lament involves entrusting that to God. It's an act of faith. The other thing that probably speaks to our limits in terms of imagination are are very clear limits in America in 2020 regarding empathy. Hmm. We're really bad at empathy. I know a lot of folks might question, well, does that fit in to church life? Like, that's not a spiritual practice, is it? And I'd argue that it actually is, and Jesus models it for us uh, by the way he saw people and heard people and met them where they are, that was empathetic. Uh, the way Jesus listened to people's cries, understood what their circumstances were. And our em empathetic muscles, I think, are very, very weak right now. If they were stronger, we'd question things like what we actually mean when we use the word we, right? Mm -hmm. Which is often narrower than we would like to admit. And how can we imagine broadly if our understanding of the word we is an arrow? So if we were stronger at empathy, I think we'd have a more expansive, more imaginative movement of the church in the world. Are there, I, uh, lament is you know, a crucial one, and I think especially for uh, the evangelical community, one we're trying to refine in some ways. Are there other practices of the church that you think help 
build empathy or practices that you've noticed during this time that have maybe you miss more than you thought you would, or they mattered more than you thought they would uh, because we can't gather together? So I think it was striking to me when I was in seminary that I had to take, I think it was three semesters of coursework on speaking and preaching. And I was required to take zero semesters of coursework on listening. <laughs> that says something about what's important in the life of faith, right? Mm -hmm. Our priorities are screwed up. We have so little practice at listening. And by listening, I don't necessarily just mean that physical in the ears kind of listening. I mean, when you're reading a book, are you trying to understand where the writer is coming from, what their social location is, rather than placing yourself at the center of every story? If you're looking at Facebook, if you're looking at Twitter, if you're looking at Instagram, are you reacting to what you see, the words and the images, in a way that listens to the subtext, the thing that is behind the thing, the motivations of the person who posted it as opposed to your motivations as a consumer. We're so good at consuming and we're so good at broadcasting, but we're not real good at listening. And I think that too is a spiritual practice, um, listening to the world around us and what the cries are, cries for justice, cries to be seen, cries to be heard, cries for help, um, cries for understanding. Uh, this is making me think about that. I, I am blanking on where this comes from somewhere along the line. I picked this up. Um, but that idea of, as you talk about empathy and listening, that idea of um, the way that other people, particularly when we're able to cultivate these practices of listening and empathy, make a claim on us. Um, I mean, it's so Levinas has that idea of the, the face of another making a claim on you. Um, when you see them face to face, it's the power of seeing. Um, and I, I think that as you talk about empathy and listening, it strikes a chord with me as far as the, the ways in which that listening and empathy does make a claim on us, um, which maybe goes back to the, your original thought on um, the costliness of the call. So I preached a couple weeks ago, we we're working through Roman at my church and I preached on what Christian freedom means, right? Freedom is such a loaded word in the American context. We're obsessed with liberty. And I think the secular understanding of freedom and liberty are deeply different from the biblical definition of freedom because we're operating in the secular environment, in secular America, from a very independence-obsessed place. And the Bible, coming as it does from a Near Eastern culture, is about interdependence. It's about the collective good. Mm -hmm. And so often we approach scripture with this cultural overlay that I think we really need to strip away because we're reading the text out of context. Uh, interdependence, I think, is really a fun fundamental principle of our life together. 
Um, so one of our last questions that we've been asking is that in light of your vocation, which as you talked about is multi-layered, what is the word you want to say to the church at this point? Yeah. Um, I have a lot of It's a small question. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> there are polite things that I want to say. Yeah. <laughs> ruder things that might steer people away from a worshipful spirit. So I, I want to uh, be careful about this. Um, so the way you framed it for me when you sent me this question in advance, right? was that disruption always comes with opportunity. Yep. And I bring that up because I want to challenge that premise. Mm -hmm. Sure, if you're an upper middle class white person who has the luxury of working from home, disruption brings opportunity. If you have the savings in the bank to weather loss of income, disruption brings opportunity. If you're an urban or suburban congregation made up largely of college-educated professionals, yeah, disruption brings opportunity. I want to name the reality that both in good times and bad, there's a segment of the population, both in the broader world as well as the church, for whom disruption means just another set of circumstances that you have to endure and survive. Hmm. And too often, those folks as usual, are on the margins of the church's story. Mm -hmm. I do think the church has an opportunity now to recognize that. And given what American society looks like right now, what I want to say to the broader church is maybe I am more hopeful than I ever have been that we can tap into a kind of holy imagination that the church will widen its embrace and make more chairs, make more room at the table for the great feast. Um, to do that, I think we have to set aside our persistent fundamentalism, which I see all over the theological spectrum. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We love yeah. our purity tests and we like to be gatekeepers but I don't think that's what the church was ever called to be or to do. Like we got this invitation from God to this great feast and somehow along the way, we got the idea that we were supposed to be the bouncers when in fact, we're the guests. Mm -hmm. So now we're here with worship disrupted and our routines disrupted and our habits disruptive, disrupted and Maybe there are opportunities for us, and I don't mean mainly for pastors, because let's be honest, many pastors are exhausted and zoomed out and one video away from a meltdown. Uh, <laughs> but I mean that for every single one of us in the pews, um, because there's nothing clearer to me than the reality that the world needs the kind of love that we say we believe in. People need to hear that they're loved and to believe that they're loved because society hasn't offered love. Uh, and my hope is that the church will live into that calling in substantive and material and tangible ways and patient and long suffering and difficult ways. 
that the church will see this season as bringing with it some kind of liberation from our captivity to comfort uh, so that we can focus on that hard work of love. That was a lot of words. They were really good words though. I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. And that feels like a, a, a good spot to begin to um, end our time together. Just really appreciate your words to us today, um, yeah, Jeff, thanks, but, Jeff. Also, but also your ongoing voice in the larger church um, and hope for an abundance of blessing and peace on you. Thanks. I appreciate yeah. it. Thanks so much, Jeff. Really appreciate it. Take care. Yeah, thanks, Jeff.